I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is New York Times bestselling author and Harvard evolutionary biologist, Barbara Natterson Hurwitz, MD. Her new book is Wildhood, the epic journey from adolescence to adulthood in humans and other animals. Rates of anxiety, social media interaction, depression, and suicide are rising rapidly among teenagers and young adults. To find urgently needed solutions and an understanding of how to address challenge in teens, Barbara Natterson Hurwitz, MD, studied adolescents across species and is releasing the results of a never-before-seen five-year study. She looks toward the larger animal kingdom for the source of crucial information to truly understand modern adolescent issues, including social media obsession, binge drinking, car crashes, and failure to launch. As professor of medicine in the UCA. UCLA Division of Cardiology. She co-directs the UCLA Evolutionary Medicine Program and is president-elect of the International Society for Evolution, Medicine, and Public Health. She's been a visiting professor at Harvard University Department of Human Evolutionary Biology and is featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and many more. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, doctor. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Yeah, well, actually, I, I watched your TEDx. I, this was about your other book, uh, one of one of your other books, uh, TEDx talk on uh, Zubiquity, I guess it was. But now, mm-hmm. new book. Okay, I think you carry this. Uh, you know, this five year study has carried that even further. Wildhood. Uh, you're an evolutionary biologist. Exactly, what is an evolutionary biologist? You are a cardiologist too, as I understand it. Right. So, um, yes, I am. Uh, I was trained as a physician and then a cardiologist. And for, oh, almost a little over 20 years, I was a, a professor of medicine and cardiology at UCLA, taking care of uh, human beings with, you know, high blood pressure and heart attacks. And then I had an opportunity to um, begin working with the veterinarians at the Los Angeles Zoo, uh, doing some cardiac work with them on their patients. And I learned so much about Oh, non-human animals and how much we have in common with them. And um, I began to really ask questions about why we share so much of the same vulnerability to heart disease and cancer and even even psychiatric diseases. And um, so that led me to really think about uh, the evolutionary connection uh, to, to this. And so my research and my work and my teaching now is completely focused on um, exploring the deep connection we have with other animals. And that led, uh, and that's what evolutionary biologists do, um, in a sense. They do many different things, but it's turning to our ancient common history with animals uh, to better understand modern human life. Why? It seems, and well, we, when I, I guess I mentioned in the beginning, this is a, you've just conducted this five-year study. It's never been conducted before. Have we tried to, as human beings, even scientists and doctors and, and maybe just the lay public as well, but separate ourselves? We're different. We see ourselves as different, that we're very different from other animals. And when in fact that's not the case, and that if we saw the connections, you're saying it would be helpful to us in terms of how to understand our behavior, both physical that's, and that, mental? Yeah. Absolutely. That's exactly right. There's a lot of human exceptionalism. That's a term um, to describe the, the assumption that we humans are so different and so special and unique that, um, you know, it's 
that what happens to us must be unique to us. And um, over the last 10 years, uh, my co-author Catherine Bowers and I have been turning to the natural world, you know, looking really across a very wide range of animal species to look for connections, and we've found so many. And one of the um, unexplored connections is around development, and by that I mean the transitions in our lives. And one of the most important transitions, of course, is adolescence, that transition from being a child to being a mature adult. And uh, what we found in, uh, we did a five-year study, it was an in-depth study of wild animal adolescence. And we looked um, across continents and we looked at many different types of animals. But what we found was that despite the many differences between, you know, an adolescent rainbow trout and an adolescent um, salamander and an adolescent eagle and an adolescent human being, there is this common connection, which is essentially this, that the destiny of every young animal on planet Earth is shaped by the same four factors. And that was, for us, a very wonderfully inspiring insight that um, affected us not only as scientists, but actually as parents of adolescents ourselves. So what are those four factors? Let's take a look at those and and, and talk about those and examine those. What are those four factors? So the four factors that determine whether a young animal will survive adolescence and enter the adult world independently and really thrive is whether first they learn to be safe. That is literally to take care of themselves physically. You know, young adolescent animals who are just leaving the nest, who are just leaving their burrows or caves where their parents have been giving them physical protection, they are, they're big enough to leave, but they're inexperienced. We studied um, animal after animal in which the adolescents were were big, but, but in a way kind of dumb. I mean, we say that in a nice way, but they just, they were what, what the wildlife biologists call predator naive. And there are actually some predators who, who target adolescents simply because they, they know that they don't have the moves yet, that they won't recognize the danger. So safety is number one. And whether um, an adolescent animal learns that early on or not is, is extremely important in, in shaping their future. But the second very crucial factor is whether an adolescent yeah, but, animal... Yeah. Yes. Are we staying on the stay safe one? Because I have a question about that. Sure. Stay yeah, safe. Go ahead. We, uh, and I have some sense of how humans try try to help their teenagers to stay safe. Um, as we know, that doesn't always pan out. But give us an example, like because ex- you have examples in the book of, of, of animals, for animals specifically. How do they stay safe or how do, you know, what's, is it similar? Um, Do they have the same kind of parental or the connection to their parents or how does that work? Right. So one of the really interesting things is how um, parents play a role in helping adolescent animals stay safe. And then some of the things that animals do themselves, the adolescents do themselves, keep them safe. Parents, um, there's a lot of what's called flexible parenting in the animal kingdom where we see, um, parental, increased parental protection some of the time and then some of the time less. And some of the studies we looked at saw that uh, animals who were overprotected, adolescents, that is, who were provided with too much care um, in terms of protection from predators, didn't ultimately learn enough um, to protect themselves. And um, on the other hand, if they weren't protected enough, of course, that could be catastrophic. 
Some of the things that um, were really most helpful to us as parents, though, was to um, learn about how wild animals sometimes actually approach their predators instead of fleeing for them. Not, not all the time, but occasionally. For example, there are adolescent bats that we studied that fly toward the owls that prey on them. They take a look. They, um, they really get information about the bat, the uh, owls. So they're, they're gaining safety information, even though they're actually exposing themselves to a little bit of danger. Gazelle do the same thing with cheetah. We know that a meerkat, um, an adolescent meerkat, um, some fish also do the same thing where they come together with other adolescents and uh, sometimes some older animals as well, and they move toward the danger to better understand uh, what they're up against. And that's something that we don't advocate that human adolescents do, but we do know that our adolescents do some rather knuckleheaded things some of the time. And um, recognizing that we humans share um, a tremendous amount of brain biology with our animal ancestors, knowing that across the animal kingdom, adolescents approach sometimes, approach predators to gain safety information can help us understand better perhaps why uh, some of our adolescents sometimes take these seemingly insane risks that we as adults wouldn't think about doing. But that's re- that's very interesting because then we we need to, on some level, permit our adole- our, our teenagers, the adolescents, to experiment because they are learning, and there that is a learning experience. There's always that. What's the fine line between how far you should go? And then I was also thinking, as you're talking about helicopter parents and how damaging that can be, because you've never given your children or your adolescents the opportunity to do that because you're so overprotected. So then you're not really prepared for the real world or when you go to college or when you get your first job. Um, and that connection with, with as you're describing, the, the bat, um, and I'm sure that can be, that's replicated, you're saying, throughout the whole animal kingdom. Yes, we found examples of it in fish, in birds, in mam- lots and lots of mammals, absolutely. No, you're, I, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, there were a lot of lessons um, that I think are really relevant to, to parents. We, we looked at um, adolescent salmon, right? So, you know, you go to a restaurant and there's a choice. You can get, you know, farm, farm salmon or you can get wild salmon, right? And it turns out the, um, the hatchery salmon, that is the, the farm salmon, they, um, you know, their eggs hatch and they're kept in, a, in an isolated area where they don't encounter predators and they don't watch adults deal with predators. They, when they're released as adolescents, they have upwards of 95% mortality. In other words, They're completely predator naive. So what many of the farms have started to do is to provide them with predator training. That is to teach these um, predator naive adolescent farmed salmon how to um, avoid getting eaten in their earliest days when they're released. So um, there are just lots and lots of lessons for, um, for us in terms of the danger of inexperience that, you know, on the one hand, being inexperienced is, is dangerous because you, you know, you can fall for predators' tricks. You don't recognize, um, you don't really, you don't understand what's going on in a way. But on the other hand, gaining experience can be dangerous too. So as parents, um, and uh, we need to kind of make that balance. One of the great things that happened um, in the last 20 years 
has been a recognition that um, at 16, a lot of adolescents get their licenses, but they lack experience on the road. So instead of just, you know, getting a license now at age 16 and off you go, which is what happened when I was 16, now, you know, we have these graduated licenses where, you know, you get your learner's permit and then, you know, you have certain rules and certain limitations. So you're gaining experience, but you're not being exposed to the maximum amount of danger. And I think that is a really good model for how we can help our lessons approach danger in general. Yeah, that generalizes to a lot of other areas of <clears throat> of behavior. Okay, that's the, the stay safe. One of the other things that you say is fundamental uh, to adolescents and to, and to animals, to human beings, is to how to live with others. How does that fit into the picture? How do- yes, well, yes as, as you mentioned earlier, there's really an epidemic of anxiety among our adolescents and uh, and, it's, and it seems to be worsening. And, and, of course, everyone points to social media. And we, we agree with that. Catherine and I have talked a lot about this and done a lot of research. So why are adolescents so addicted increasingly to their phones and social media? And um, how can we understand animal adolescents in ways that can help us um, deal with anxiety in humans? Probably the, the most important linkage is that all animals who live in groups, that would be human beings and other mammals and then birds and, and fish, um, are constantly comparing themselves to each other. Now, that may sound kind of crazy uh, to talk about fish comparing each other, but indeed all vertebrates, these are animals with a backbone and include all the, the, the groups that I mentioned, have parts of their brain that are called the social brain network. And those social brain networks um, are busily... Um, helping animals understand whether their status is higher or lower than the animal next to them. The reason this is important in the animal world is that higher status fish, for example, have a higher survival. And lower status fish um, can be really in danger of dying. For example, the lowest ranking uh, members of certain bird flocks and groups of fish are um, fly or swim on the outside of the school or flock, and that's called the domain of danger. That's where the predators are more likely to pick them off. The point is there's a lot of benefit to being higher status as an animal. And the brains that we've inherited from our animal ancestors, we, we have that same apparatus where higher status um, is desired. And, and so when, when um, and in, during adolescence, it turns out, uh, this is a period in which there is a lot more comparing because adult hierarchies are being shaped in the animal world. Now, if you think about what social media is, it is just a nonstop kind of comparison. You literally are comparing status, you're comparing the number of likes. And if you've ever watched a 15-year-old uh, compose an Instagram post and, and she, she sort of it looks as though she feels it's a matter of life or death. The mm-hmm. reason she feels that way is because for hundreds of millions of years, her animal ancestors, it, it was status was and is a matter of life or death. So the so, content, the, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say that's, that that's teenagers, you know, how popular, even before social media, popularity was key. I mean, that was life or death. If you were considered unpopular, you weren't in the, the popular group. Or I, I mean, even before the internet, um, that's, right. that's always that's yeah, right. that's always been an issue with teenagers. Yeah. Yep. In fact, one of the things that's really interesting is 
tracking how a teenager feels, like literally you say, hey, how do you feel? And connecting that to what's happened in their life that day that's affected their popularity. And I love that you use the term popularity because we actually looked, we studied, um, it, we looked at popularity in great depth and found a lot of correlations with animal status, that is an animal hierarchy. Um, and so we think that the reason uh, a teenager may have fluctuations in mood is simply that there's fluctuations in his or her status over the course of a day, a week, a month. And, you know, with my own teenagers, particularly with my son, I used to say, hey, you know, how are you feeling? And the last thing in the world he wanted to do was talk about his feelings. But, um, you know, I do know that if I talk to him about, hey, you know, what's going on socially in the classroom, you know, he could map on a whiteboard um, exactly, you know, who had status and, and in different categories, who was better at sports, who was better at math, um, you know, who had more kids coming to his birthday party, and all that was before social media. I remember, and I can give a, a, a this absolutely goes along with what you're saying. Now, as my listeners know, I mean, I'm the grandmother of a set of one and a half, uh, 18-month-old twins and a three-year-old, so you can get some idea of how old I am. I remember in first grade very distinctly wanting to, they had the, you know, the different groups, whether it was a, a bear or a giraffe or <laughs> whatever it was. And, but you knew uh-huh. instinctively the giraffe group was the number one group and that's the group you wanted to be in. And if you weren't in that, you were really disappointed. That's first grade. And that's a yes. long, long time ago. So it sort of explains exactly what you're talking about. And it was very important. Oh, it's so, you know, I can remember the same kind of thing. And in our studies and in our book, in Wildwood, we have a, um, we actually go back and, and, and found that even toddlers, so these are, you know, pretty young kids can um, spend more time looking at uh, certain other toddlers and even infants. In other words, there's already a, a sense that there's a hierarchy of, of status. And that is, uh, has all kinds of relevance for us as parents and as and it's for teachers as well. You know, we found that um, among certain animals we studied and we write, wrote about um, certain uh, monkey species, for example, uh, lower status, lower ranking monkeys couldn't learn as well when there were higher ranking monkeys around and they didn't test as well. So we actually learned about these monkeys who, you know, learned to do this um, this set of, uh, of manipulations, and they can do it perfectly. Um, and but they they found that the lower uh, the lower ranking monkeys could could do it fine um, when they were with other lower ranking monkeys. But when they brought in the high status group, um, they the lower ranking monkeys performed far less well on the test. Now these were monkeys who literally moments before could perform perfectly on the test. So this was absolutely mind blowing. Uh, in a sense, because, um, you know, you think about all of the factors that go into how well kids do on exams, which, you know, have a lot to do with what happens next in their lives. And this, this reality that um, a person's status and an animal's status, and of course we're animals, can directly impact their ability to perform on tests, um, we think is really important to know. 
Well, it has to do, I'm thinking, also, as you're describing it, I mean, one of the big issues, it, it's usually an ongoing kind of issue, ongoing issue is like whether you mainstream kids who have uh, disabilities, you know, severe yeah. disabilities or with regular kids and you put them in, and it, as you're describing it, if you put these kids in a classroom with you know, kids who are performing so much better, how does that make you feel? And it's not going to prove your uh, ability, um, it's going to really take away from it, isn't it? I mean, I don't know, but I just, that was sort of the first, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, and I, it's a really, really interesting question, and I, and I think it's, I mean, it's such a, um, a wonderful thing that we're all thinking about, you know, having all kinds of diversity in classrooms and tolerance and learning from each other. I do think there's a lot that teachers can do to, um, to, uh, make sure that that every student can perform as well as they possibly can. I just think being informed about the the fact that this can happen, that this is really hardwired, um, is news that teachers can use in terms of finding these, adopting these strategies to minimize the kind of comparisons that are pretty toxic and can be detrimental to certain students. I absolutely. Next, we only have four minutes left, so let's just get in. Maybe we won't have be able to do all uh, four of these. The uh, fun, to, you know, the uh, what teenagers have to do fundamentally, but in order to survive. But let's take the one. Let's take sex because that's always interesting. How they have sure. to learn how to communicate sexually, and I guess the last one is how to live independently. Let's let's start with the sexually. See how far yeah. we can get. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So, so um, you know, if an animal is going to be sexual in their life, there's going to be a first time. And, um, you know, we do our research. We looked a lot at uh, what happens the first time and found all kinds of commonalities in fumbling and in, um, you know, just the challenges of, of, of that particular um, aspect of, of life. But perhaps um, really more kind of in a more profound way, we, we learned that animals... Um, Unlike, you know, I, I kind of assumed that in the wild, animals uh, became reproductively, their bodies, you know, they went through puberty and boom, they started to have sex and have offspring. But we found that that wasn't the case at all. That very often, um, wild animals developed reproductive maturity, that is, their bodies could make offspring, but because they hadn't learned all of the moves of courtship or because of their social situation, they often, um, there could be a lag of, months and sometimes years before they actually started breeding. That um, in nature, it turns out, just because a body is able to make a baby or offspring, um, it doesn't mean that the animal is sufficiently mature socially and in all kinds of ways to care for offspring. So that was really interesting. Um, we also And very um, surprising. Really, uh, that We have one minute left, so it, we've got to get people yeah. out there. They can buy the book if they to finish the okay. conversation because there's so much more, obviously, that we didn't cover. And uh, the title of the book is Wildhood, The Epic Journey from Adolescence to Adulthood in Humans and Other Animals. And we've been talking to New York Times bestselling author, physician, Barbara Naderson Horowitz, MD. Website we can go to Barbara to you know so for more information. Yes, yeah, so um, you can go to wildhood.com, which is our website, and buy the book um, you know on Amazon and um, all the other places that we have uh, listed the traditional places uh, and an independent bookstore. But we are there at wildhood.com. Um, I have uh, we have our zubiquity.com website as well, where we um, focus on all of the uh, shared. Um, medical and health challenges, the many challenges between humans and animals, all the commonalities that we have there. But wildhood.com is where you can find more information about wild animal adolescence and all the ways in which um, 
we as human beings, our teenagers and young adults, um, share with uh, the animals in the wild and how growing up uh, is more common than you would think. And there's just so much that that we've been learning in the last several years about these commonalities, and we're, we're excited to um, have other people learn about them, too. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 